Welcome to the Grace Baptist Church podcast, and thanks for joining us for this episode. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy this content, please don't hesitate to leave us a five-star review and share this podcast with your friends. We'd like to extend an invitation to you and your family to join us for worship this week at Grace Baptist Church. We'd also love to connect with you online at gracekettering.org. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy the episode. Mark chapter 11 here, and I want to read some verses that perhaps we know well, but I want to take some time just to think through um, what Jesus is saying here and uh, the lesson he has for us. Mark chapter 11 and verse number 12 says, and on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry, that's Jesus. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, notice that, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Jesus is now less than one week away from his crucifixion. He knows what's coming, but no one else does. And just the day before, he had ridden into Jerusalem on that, on that donkey, and he had been praised by the multitudes as the promised kings. They, they shouted and waved those palm branches, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This was something that they had been looking forward to, they had been waiting for, and they thought perhaps now truly, Jesus, maybe the, he is the Christ. He's the one that we've been waiting for, the promised one that all these years we have been looking and hoping for to deliver us, to set up the kingdom, deliver us from Rome. This is what Jesus had just went through. And he spent the night then with his close friends, a family named, uh, friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now you remember Lazarus, he was uh, just recently raised from the dead. What do you think those conversations were like around that, that table? Can you imagine? I mean, that was quite the event that took place. And, of course, there were some people who were not happy about that. And uh, back in Jerusalem, we were trying to decide what to do as word of who Jesus was was spreading. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived in a place called Bethany. And Bethany was about a mile and a half away from Jerusalem, nestled there in the foothills of the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus, during these days, was traveling from Bethany, there from the Mount of Olives, over to Jerusalem. And on his way on this trip, they pass by. Jesus is hungry, and, and so he notices a tree, a fig tree. Now, of course, that was a regular common sight there in Israel, not very common around here necessarily, and, but, but common there. And he sees the fig tree, and it was... It wasn't quite time when they should be bearing fruit, but he saw this fig tree had leaves on it. Now, I'm no expert on fig trees, but my understanding is that if a fig tree has leaves, it should already have fruit. The leaves follow the fruit. They don't precede it. It's something unique about fig trees. And so Jesus went seeing there's leaves here. Oh, so there should be fruit. That's a little bit early, but there's leaves, so there must be fruit. And he goes expecting to find fruit, and he finds nothing. It says here in the text, nothing but leaves. Well, Jesus is disappointed by that, it seems, but he also, I think, sees an opportunity to teach his disciples some important truth in that moment. And we could certainly take time here today to, to preach a message, and sometime I should work on one here, about, about something that looks like it should have fruit, but doesn't. 
but we could have some application there, right? As believers, perhaps we look like we should be people producing fruit, but we don't. But that's not the focus of where we're going here this morning. So Jesus, seeing that there's no, no fruit on this, this tree, he pronounces a, a curse against it, is what Paul calls it. And he says, no one is ever going to eat fruit from you anymore after this. And it specifically says here, and his disciples heard it. So it's not like Jesus went over to this tree and found out something like, oh, we don't have any. He, he made a declaration. It wasn't muttering something under his breath. It was, it was something he, he wanted to make sure his disciples could hear this. And so they did. Well, the next day, they're, they're making this same trip. They, they've gone there, and some exciting things happen in Jerusalem, you know, cleaning out the temple and all those kind of, you know, just ordinary things. And then Jesus makes his way back to Bethany for the night, and he's coming again the next morning. And notice what happens down in verse number 20. It says, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Wow. Wow, that's quite, uh, quite the turn of events. So they're passing by, and can you picture Peter for a moment? You can picture Peter, right? You know enough about Peter to, to kind of get the picture of how this guy works. Uh, Peter, boy, he's, he's the go-getter among those disciples. He's always out front. And Peter, I, I don't think he was just walking along and then happened to notice the fig tree. I personally think Peter, um, he was looking. Because he remembered what happened yesterday. And he thought, I wonder if anything's going on with those. Maybe, maybe the leaves are starting to turn colors now. You know, Those leaves that are there, they're starting to die. And so Peter, he's, he's like, I'm going to go scout ahead a little bit, just make sure the coast is clear. And he's, he's going quick up there. And, others, and, and he's looking, where's that fig Whoa, guys, check this out. Did you see this? The fig, it's, it's totally withered up. It, it doesn't just say that it was starting to wilt. It doesn't say it just kind of started to die a little bit. It said it was literally shriveled up from the roots up. The whole thing was dead. You ever seen a dead tree before? It went from one day looking like it was full of life to the very next morning now, full of death, nothing there. I mean, just shriveled up from the bottom. Wow. And Peter, he says, Master, look at the fig tree. Look at it. The one that you cursed, it's, it's withered away to nothing. And Jesus, in this moment, gives his, his disciples an incredible promise, an incredible lesson about the matter of prayer that I think we can learn something from here this morning. Notice Jesus' response when Peter comes and says, look at what happened. Jesus doesn't really say anything more about the fig tree. He says, I have something for you to learn because you could do the same thing. Notice here it says in verse 22, And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. Boy, what a beautiful four words. Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer here. Lord, would you help us as we look at this amazing promise from you? Would you open our eyes to understand the need of our own heart, to understand who you are 
and how you work. Lord, would you teach us today to pray? So Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Holy Spirit, would you take and you move in the hearts of these folks here who are here this morning to hear a word from you? Lord, they don't need anything that I can give them. They need what you alone can give them here today. So fill them to receive your word here this morning. Do what needs to be done in our hearts. Convict where we need conviction. Encourage where we need encouragement. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Oh, Lord, we're calling upon you to move here in our hearts this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. In 2011, I was traveling with a team up in uh, Canada. And we were able to go to Western Canada there to the Canadian Rockies. Has anyone here ever been to the Canadian Rockies? All right, we have a few folks who have. Absolutely incredible. How many of you have been to our Colorado Rockies, the Western Rockies? Okay, so a lot more hands there, right? And I love, I love our uh, U.S. Rocky Mountains. Absolutely beautiful. I mean, I, I'm happy to go there anytime. All right, uh, just, just gorgeous. But the Canadian Rockies take even a little bit of a step up. And usually I wouldn't say that about Canada. hope there's no Canadians here. Um, no, Canada is, I, I love, I've, I've enjoyed going there. Um, but their Rockies, I'm telling you, they are a step up. They're so rugged and tall and impenetrable. I mean, just some beautiful, beautiful scenes there. They say that they are the closest thing to the Alps on the North American continent. And uh, just absolutely amazing. When I think of mountains, that's what I think of. I think of these, these, these mountains, just massive pieces of rock, jagged, towering there. And you think, when, when, you, when you see those, you think, that thing is impenetrable. That thing is going nowhere. That is, <laughs> how long has that been standing there? And it's going to keep staying there. A mountain is something that seems absolutely impossible to move. Doesn't it? And Jesus here, when he's talking about a mountain, in his context there with his disciples, it maybe wasn't quite as dramatic and rugged and beautiful as the, the Canadian Rockies that I think of when I think of this. But he was there actually standing, making this trip from one mountain to another. The Mount of Olives is standing on one side of, at 2,710 feet above sea level. On the other side, we have the Temple Mount, the city of Jerusalem, built up on a mountain there in Israel, and that's 2,428 feet above sea level. Perhaps we could say they're more like large hills, but, but mountains nonetheless are there. And this is where Jesus is, surrounded by these mountains, and he makes this statement to his disciples. He says, listen, I'm saying to you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed, and be thou cast unto the sea. Wow, wait a second. One of these mountains? I don't know which direction Jesus pointed in that moment. Was he pointing at the Mount of Olives or the Temple Mount? We don't know, but it doesn't really matter. The point is the same. Now, now one more thing we need to understand about geography here in, in, the, sit, in the, the, uh, the land of Israel. The closest uh, sea uh, to where he was standing was the Dead Sea, which happened to be about 14 miles away. The next closest sea was the Mediterranean Sea, 33 miles away. Either way you look at it, whichever sea perhaps was in their mind when Jesus said that, he's not talking about maybe an earthquake happening and this, this mountain that's on the edge of the sea sliding into the, into, into the sea. That, that's not the picture that he's giving us here. My cartoon brain pictures this, this mountain being ripped up, whoosh, roots hanging out the bottom, and whoosh, whoosh, being thrown miles before it splashes into the sea. Now, can I ask you, is that a picture of something that's impossible or something that's reasonable? 
Impossible, right? There's no way that that's going to happen. We all know that mountains don't get picked up and thrown miles into the sea. It just doesn't happen. But Jesus says it can. He says that these things that seem impossible to move can be moved through prayer. You see, if we're going to be involved in fulfilling the Great Commission, like I know you all are burdened about, and I'm excited to hear about this missions trip that you all are taking, and I know your, your pastor's heart to be reaching here into your community, but whether it's here or somewhere else around the world, if you're going to be involved in the Great Commission in any way, you're going to face some mountains, some impossibilities, some things that just seem like there's no way this is going to change. There's no way that this is going to move. It could be mountains of spiritual opposition. There's no way that's going to change. Some mountains of sickness. It could be mountains of false religion or mountains of substance abuse. Mountains of financial hardship. Mountains of broken relationships. Whatever your mountain is today, we're probably, you probably all have one that you're facing. One thing you can think of is that this is impossible. It's never going to happen. That person you've prayed for for a long time that loved one who has walked away from the Lord, that, that situation that seems like a person you're trying to reach and it seems like I'm not getting anywhere. Mountains. Things that seem absolutely impossible to move. A roadblock that you've hit. You feel like I just can't get past this. It seems like I'm trying and I keep hitting this and there's nothing more we can do. Then this promise, my friend, is for you. Now, notice what it says here in verse 23. It says, Verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say to this mountain. You see, this is a promise that is available to any and every disciple of Jesus. It says whosoever. It doesn't say the pastor. You know, he's specially gifted to pray this way. It doesn't say the prayer warriors are specially, that this is for them. He doesn't say the people that have gone to Bible college or the people that have been saved for 30 years it says, whosoever. Listen to me, friend, it doesn't matter who you are here today. You can have prayer that moves mountains. You don't have to put up with these obstacles staying there, hindering you from moving forward and accomplishing what God's called you to do. The mountains can move by the power of God. It's a promise of answers to prayer. Notice the end of verse 23. It says, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Notice verse 24, he says, What things soever ye desire, when ye pray, ye shall have them. Answers to prayer. Can I ask you, friend, is your prayer life defined by answers? By actually receiving something from God? Or do we go through the motions of prayer, but it seems like nothing happens? See, Jesus is promising a life here marked by answers to prayer. Don't you love to read stories about someone like George Mueller? I don't know if I'm related or not. Okay. Well, we love to read those stories, right? Boy, how God just answered prayers miraculously. Prayers like John Hyde, praying Hyde, and how God works in amazing ways in answers to prayer. Can I tell you, they weren't special people. They were ordinary people who learned how to move mountains through prayer. You see, friends, mountains move when you pray unhindered. Obstacles in your life are removed when you pray unhindered. 
Oh yes, there's many things in our, in our lives that we never, many answers to prayer that we never receive because we never ask for them, right? Jesus said, ye have not because ye ask not. That there are things like that. But what about those things where you are asking and it seems like you're still not receiving? Where, where you are and you have been and you continue to ask, but it just seems like the obstacle is just as great as ever. What's hindering us from seeing Jesus do the miraculous in answer to our prayers? You see, Jesus says here that by faith, we have the power to see any obstacle removed, no matter what it is, no matter how great it is. But as he gives us that amazing promise, as he's that simple statement, have faith in God, he, gives it, he just lays it out. But as he does this, he lays out two hindrances that will keep us from seeing those mountains move. And that's what I want us to look at here this morning. What are these hindrances? You see, if you want to see the obstacles move, if you want to see those mountains move, it's not complicated. He says, simply have faith in God. Ask, and it will be done. But he says, there's a couple of things that will hold it back from happening. A couple of hindrances. And we need to deal with those hindrances in our own heart so that we can be people who pray unhindered and see mountains move. What's the first hindrance that we see here in this text of Scripture that, that keeps us from seeing these mountain-moving prayers answered? The first one that Jesus lays out for us, notice he says, verse 23, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. The first hindrance is an unbelieving heart. An unbelieving heart. Faith is obviously at the core of what Jesus is seeking to address here. He begins his lesson with these words, have faith in God. If we look here at the text, we see he talks about doubt, but shall believe. He says in, again in verse 24, but believe. He's dealing with faith. But he brings up this word, he says, and shall not doubt in his heart. You know, friends, we all have an innate tendency to doubt. We all have that, that ability, that 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 urge to just, I'm not sure about this. This word doubt here means to, to be divided in one's mind, to hesitate, to question. It's not really uh, one of those people who says, oh, listen, that is never going to happen. Maybe that's what we think of when we think of a doubter, someone who's, who's, who's a naysayer who says, that's impossible, just don't even try, forget it, that's not going to happen. That's not what he's talking about when he talks about a doubter here. The doubt that he is talking about is simply someone who says, I'm not sure what to think. I don't know. I mean, maybe it'll happen. I sure hope it will, but it might, it might not. So if that's how you pray, he says, you've got doubt in your heart. Don't expect the mountain to move. If you're saying, I just, I just don't know. I don't know if God will do that in answer to my prayer. A Sunday school teacher once asked his class, what is faith? And the little boy there, one of the little boys, pipes up with a confident answer. I think it's believing God and asking no questions. Boy, that's pretty simple, isn't it? We like to complicate things. Boy, we like to ask questions. We like to look at things logically. We, li we like to think about how could God do this. We try to figure out the details of how is this answer going to happen? How is this mountain going to move? And we're trying to think through it and question through it and logically reason our way through it. And God calls it doubt. 
We're trying to figure it out. We're questioning, how is this going to happen? Listen, if you want to move mountains, you cannot have doubt in your heart. So we have an innate tendency to doubt. But what Jesus is trying to help us see here is that genuine faith results in expectation. Instead of questioning, is this something that actually is going to, going to happen? No, that's not faith. If there's questioning, it is not faith. If there's, if there's wondering if it's going to happen, it's actually not faith. He's saying, listen, actual faith produces expectation that God is actually already doing. Notice it says here, believe and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. In verse 24, he says, what things soever ye desire, when ye pray, believe that you receive them. We could literally render that believe, start believing that you are receiving the answer. Not that God is going to answer your prayer, but that he is answering your prayer. Listen, when you come to God and you say, God, there's this need, and I, we need you to do something here. Would you, would you change this situation? Would you change this person's heart? Would you open their eyes? Not saying, all right, well, I hope God does something. I asked him about it. That's not faith. That's the doubt. Faith is saying, God, would you, would you change this person's heart? Would you open their eyes to this need in their life? Would you help them to understand this truth? Would, would you remove this hindrance? Would you provide for this need? And, and coming away saying, all right, God's doing something. I ask, so he's moving. We're talking about the God who is on the throne who said, ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it shall be opened. He doesn't say I might in any of those. He says, if you do, I will. Our God is predictable. Isn't that a blessing? He's a God who he responds when we ask, not because he has to, but because he's chosen to work that way. In 2009, we had a teen revival conference, and I was there helping with that, not preaching, just a, a part of counseling and so forth. And, and uh, during the sessions, we would have a time of prayer. A group of us would meet together to pray as the preaching was going on. And uh, During that time, I really, I feel like I was, I was just in kindergarten in prayer. I still feel that way in so many ways, but I was, feel like I was more of a spectator in those prayer meetings than I was anything else. But during some of those prayer meetings, one in particular, we were nearing the end of the conference, and we knew there, was, there were several hundred young people. There were a lot of needs in their hearts, and, and we, were, we were just saying, Lord, you've got to do something. You've got to break through in, this, in these hearts. And so we're praying, and I don't know how else to describe this, but that God, using the word of God as we prayed together, the spirit of God giving unity in our hearts, convinced us he is moving and he is working. We, we're asking, and since we asked, and there was... It was according to his will, we believed, based on the word of God, then he said, I'm, he's, he's moving. And so we, we literally turned the corner in the prayer meeting and said, all right, we're not going to keep asking. We're going to just start thanking God for what, he's, what he's, he's said that he is doing. And so we, we finished up that prayer meeting, and we came out, and we all had an expectation in our heart. God is doing. God's going to break through in these hearts. And uh, that session that was preaching finished up, and there was an invitation, and a few kids responded, but, but nothing, nothing like we believed God had led us to claim in prayer and that he had said he was going to do. And so we, we continued to, to just say, all right, God's, God's moving. There's, we, weren't, we weren't worried about it. We weren't questioning it. We just said, God's, God's moving, and uh, he's starting. We know he is. We're just gonna, he's, he's moving. And so we came to that next session, and we, we sat in that session. We didn't even meet to pray during that session. We, we went and we sat in the auditorium, and, and I don't know how else to describe it except for that as the preacher got up to speak, all of us in the auditorium knew 
God is here. And he preached that message, and, and uh, when it came to the time of the invitation, he gave that invitation, and 90% of the auditorium cleared out as young people went back to deal with their sin, to get right with God, to come clean with God. It was, it was an amazing time. We literally had young people more than we could. We didn't have enough counselors, and so we had young people waiting for us to finish counseling one to come to then. And I talked with one young man and came to another young man, and he was still there and just visibly under deep conviction of sin. And this is after 20 minutes from dealing with one guy coming to the next. God had come and moved in a remarkable way on the hearts of those young people. It was, it was an amazing thing to be a part of. But can I tell you, None of us who were part of that prayer meeting were surprised when it happened. Oh, we were encouraged. Boy, we were blessed. We were, th- we, were, we were amazed to see God answering prayer. But it's exactly what we expected him to do. Because by his grace, we had prayed and with faith, with expectation. Listen, when you pray, do you expect something to happen? Do you come away saying, all right, God's doing something? If you can't see what is happening, do you believe that it actually is? God is actually moving already in response to your prayer. I think oftentimes we pray about something and then we think, all right, next time I go back, you know, maybe we pray about that person you've tried to give the gospel to and it's just been hard. And so we, we pray about it and then we go back the next time and we expect it to be exactly the same. Maybe we don't even want to go back because we think, oh, they don't want to hear. We prayed about it, like, God, would you soften their heart, but we don't expect anything to have changed. And again, I recognize we can't always see what God is doing. We can't see what God's doing in hearts. Sometimes there's there's things that God is doing that we don't even know about. But we go back and we don't expect anything to be different. You know why? Because we think I prayed and it's not going to make a difference. We pray because we should But we don't actually expect things to change. We don't expect God to move in response to our prayers. Friends, can I tell you, that's not faith. That's not faith at all. You see, we can say that we believe and not really believe. Notice what Jesus is pointing out here. He's saying, listen, there's words of faith spoken either way. Well, you can say to this mountain, be thou removed, but it can either be with doubt in your heart or without doubt in your heart. And that makes all the difference. The words of faith, that's not the issue. It's it's the issue of the heart, faith or belief in the heart, or is there doubt? It's said of Alexander the Great that that he wanted to reward a philosopher who had rendered a great service to him. And so he told that philosopher, he said, ask whatever you will of me. Well, this philosopher decided to actually take him up on his offer. And so he went to the treasurer and he said, I'd like 10,000 pounds of gold. Well, the treasurer was shocked by such an enormous request, and he actually was angered by it. And so he refused. He said, you ask too much, your request is unreasonable. And he actually went to the emperor, and he told him those, things, those words. He said, listen, he's asking for way too much. This is an unreasonable request. We cannot grant this request to him. And Alexander the Great let him, you know, spill his anger, and he listened patiently. And then he instructed, instructed the treasurer to give the philosopher exactly what he had asked for. He said, he honored me in three ways. First, he believed my word. Second, he believed my wealth. Third, he believed my willingness to do what I said I would do. Give him the money. 
He has honored me by his great faith in my words. What would God say if we actually took him up on his offer that he's giving us here in this verse today? What would God, what would God do? What would we see if we didn't just say that we believe God with our lips, that we have faith in God, but if we actually believed in our hearts that he is going to keep his end of the bargain? You see, this unbelief in our hearts, this questioning, this doubting, thinking that, well, I hope something happens, but it probably isn't going to, it reveals that deep down inside, we don't think that God can be trusted. Which is why he says in Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Well, you and I don't want to call that an evil heart, do we? When we just question, when we, when we lack expectation that God will actually do what he said he would do. We don't want to call that evil, but he does. Because we are questioning his very character. Is God trustworthy? Oh, we'll sing, great is thy faithfulness. Oh, we can trust God. But then we don't actually believe it in our hearts. And it's revealed by the fact we don't expect anything to happen when we pray. We don't expect God, we don't think that he's actually moving when we ask something. And that's why we don't see mountains move. I'm afraid often we know how to say the right things after we've prayed, but in our hearts, we don't actually believe it. Nothing's going to change. Yeah, we've prayed, we've, we've prayed about those people. They've rejected the gospel before, and it's probably not going to change next time I go. That sickness, it's probably not going to go away. That person, they're not going to be freed from addiction. That mountain is just never going to move. Say, all right, Brother Mueller, I, I see it, I see it. I, this unbelieving heart, uh, that's me. I, I question, I, I try to logic through, logic my way, reason my way through things. You know, is this, could this happen or not? How is God going to, and I try to figure that out, and I, I'm questioning, and I, and I have this doubt in my heart. How do I deal with it? How do we solve this issue of an unbelieving heart that keeps us from seeing mountains moved? It's really not complicated. And maybe that's the problem. We like complicated solutions. But the way to deal with an unbelieving heart is to get your eyes back on God. How did Jesus start this whole thing? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. See, it isn't, it's not an issue of how, how much faith do I have, or how strong is my faith, or even how mature is my faith. That's not the issue. The issue is, who am I trusting in? Where is my faith placed? And my friend, if your faith is in God, you don't have to have any doubt. You see, we can't work up this faith. So if we're struggling with unbelief, you need to spend time with God. If you say, I've got this unbelieving heart, you need to get alone with God. And get to know him. You need to immerse yourself in his word. You need to focus on his promises. You need to get your eyes off of that mountain and put it on the true mountain mover. And I tell you, we spend a lot of our time looking at the obstacles and how impossible they are and how much it does this can't change. Boy, how, 
how much this seems to just be towering above us, and it gets bigger every time we look at it. We spend a lot of time looking at the obstacle. Can I tell you, if you're, if you're looking at the obstacle, if that's where your focus is, yeah, you're going to have doubt in your heart. You're going to have this issue of an unbelieving heart because when you're looking at that obstacle, it seems bigger and bigger every time. But if you'll take your eyes from that obstacle and put your eyes on God, instead of looking at the mountain, you look at the mountain mover, all of a sudden, where did that problem go? Because it is nothing compared to God. Well, that mountain that seems so huge, that seems so impenetrable, that seems impossible to rip up out of its roots and throw into the sea, when you look at God, you realize this is nothing for him. See, if you'll live with your focus on him, if, you, if, if you'll get your, spend time with him and actually get to know him as a person, or not just the doctrine about him, but what did he say to me? What does what, what his word lay out as being true about for me? And, and who is God really? And, and experience the reality of who God is in your life. Can I tell you, those mountains can start to move because the unbelief in your heart will melt away when your eyes are on him. get our eyes off the circumstances, off the difficulties, off the challenges around us and say, I'm going to live with my eyes on him. And that only comes, friends, when we actually spend time getting to know him. You cannot get to know God by accident. You can't, you can't seek God without intentionally choosing to get to know him. Oh, he wants to be found he is, and, and he's working, he's seeking to draw you to himself, but he wants you to seek him with all of your heart. And he says, when you do, I will be found. And when you find him, my friend, oh, when your eyes are on him and you see him and you know him, those obstacles don't seem so huge anymore. Well, how do we deal with this unbelieving heart? Get your eyes back on the one who moves mountains. That's the first hindrance that we see here in this passage, an unbelieving heart. But Jesus gives us another as he's dealing with this matter of, of seeing mountains move. The very same context, the same lesson, he continues on in verse 25. We haven't read this yet. He says, and when ye stand praying, forgive. If ye have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, Neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Oh, the first hindrance, the first hindrance that keeps us from seeing obstacles moved in our Christian life is an unbelieving heart. But the second hindrance that Jesus lays out for us here, he says that, that, that just as much can keep us back from seeing those mountains move is an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit. It's interesting how often Jesus connects forgiveness and prayer. We don't have time to go all through the passages today. I was listening to a message just yesterday that, that, that the preacher walked through how many times the, Jesus connects these two issues together. It's remarkable. And why is that? We see, because faith, as we think about this passage, puts us into right relations with God, but our, our relations with our fellows must also be right if we're going to pray and speak effectually, one commentator said. So what is forgiveness? If this is essential, if this is something that will hinder us from seeing mountains move, what is forgiveness? Notice these couple of words here. This passage helps actually define for us 
what forgiveness is. It says, when ye stand praying, forgive if ye have aught against any. Against any. Notice those words. An unforgiving spirit is holding something against someone. Now listen, friends, we live in a sin-cursed planet. We're sinners, surrounded by sinners. And so things happen in life that violate your justice system, right? That they're just wrong, shouldn't have been done to you. It's going to happen, even by people perhaps who love you or who you love. We get wronged sometimes. That parent who ignored you abused you and broke their promises again and again. The wife who nags you or the husband that you caught looking at pornography, the boss who treated you unethically on the job, the former church member who left the church with a string of damage in their wake. Things happen. Hurt. Violates our justice system. Whatever the situation is, you found yourself saying, listen, they did this to me and I don't plan to forget it anytime soon. Listen, they always do this. It's just the way that they are. Listen, I'll let go of it when they come to me and they say, sorry. But not till then. Sound familiar? An unforgiving spirit. Well, listen, friend, you cannot choose the hurt that you'll receive, but you can choose how you'll respond, and that choice will either make you or break you. holding on to an offense. Oh, it's real. The pain is real. I understand. It's real. But you're holding on to it. It's an unforgiving spirit. So what is forgiveness? If an unforgiving spirit is is holding on to an offense, then forgiveness is letting go. Letting go of the offense. Now, we live in a day where forgiveness has been redefined, even by believers, to merely be verbal assent of forgiveness that still allows you to hold a grudge. Can I tell you that's not forgiveness, according to the Bible? Oh, you might have said the right words that, oh, yeah, I've forgiven them, but you're still holding something against them. That's not forgiveness. You still have something against them. Forgiveness is a financial term. The idea of having a debt that's been forgiven, a debt that no longer has to be paid. If there was someone here who came to me after the sermon and said, Brother Mueller, I understand you're really rich, you're an evangelist, so you've got to have a lot of money, right? I need $5,000. And me, of course, being generous that I am, say, I don't have $5,000, but if I had it, I would give it to you. No, let's say I have $5,000 available, all right? I don't. This is a fictitious story, obviously. But if I had $5,000 available, sure, you can borrow that $5,000, no problem. Just pay it back when you get time, you know, when, when you're able to. And so I'll give you that $5,000, and, and you often do whatever needs to be done, uh, you know, pay for toothpaste and all those things. Um, inflation is really hitting us hard. Whatever it is, okay? And you use that $5,000, and time goes by, and I don't hear anything from you. I come back through the church here again in a couple of years, and still I'm thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'll see so-and-so in the... Maybe they'll have that $5,000 and nothing. And so uh, we kind of come, don't hear anything. Shake the hand. We talk about all sorts of other stuff. You never mention anything about the $5,000. And I feel bad to bring it up. You know, I don't want you to think I'm holding it over you, but it's there. And so afterwards, I'm talking with my wife, and we just decide, you know what, let's just, let's just forgive it. They don't, we're not even going to worry about it. They don't need, we're not going to 
make them have to pay that. We're going to forgive that debt. They don't owe us anything anymore. And so, sure enough, you know, we're, we're not expecting any more payment. We're, we're not. We've forgiven it. We don't need it any, that $5,000 back. And so, all of a sudden, whoever you are that borrowed that $5,000, wake up one morning. Oh, no. $5,000. I never paid back for the Mueller's. Well, I've I'm going to have to make sure I get that back to him. And so you write a letter, or you make a phone call to me and say, hey, listen, that $5,000, I'm going to get, I just remembered I haven't paid that. I'm going to, get, going to get that for you. And I say, no, 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 don't worry about it. My wife and I decided we're just going to, we've forgiven that debt. You don't owe us anything. Just consider it a gift. We, we don't, you, don't, you don't owe us anything anymore. Oh, no, 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 I really, no, 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 you don't owe us anything. Now, if you decide you want to give us money sometime, you're free to do that anytime you want to. But you don't owe us anything. That's forgiveness. You don't owe us anything. It's a financial term, and we understand it in that context, right? So, but this now is, we're taking, it's something in the spiritual realm. It's saying, listen, they've done something wrong. I feel like they owe me an apology. They owe, they owe a change of their ways. They owe fixing this situation somehow. They owe groveling on their face in front of me and asking for my forgiveness. That's what they owe to me, and it's coming, going to the courtroom of heaven and saying, listen, they don't owe me anything. God, even if they never come and they never apologize, it's all right. They don't owe me anything. God, e even, if, even if they never change their ways, they don't owe me anything. It's all right. I'm not holding anything against them. I'm not expecting anything from them. I'm not expecting anything to change. I'm not expecting an apology. They owe me nothing. Is there someone you need to go to the courtroom of heaven and say, God, it's forgiven released. They owe me nothing. There once was a benevolent doctor who had as his custom, as he would go through his books, and he would see this debt unpaid, this debt unpaid, one after the other. He, he, he would look at them, and knowing their situation, if he realized they're never going to be able to pay this debt back, he, he would take, and he would just, with his own red pen right there next to that, that debt, he, he'd cross it out, and he would say, forgiven, unable to pay. Well, this doctor died, and his wife, trying to pull everything back into order afterwards, is, is looking through that, uh, that, that book and sees, wow, look at this, all of these debts unpaid. Boy, my, for, my husband has forgiven a lot of money. I could use that now. And so she took that, that book, and she took it to the court to sue these people for the money that they owed. And the judge asked her, well, how do you know the money is owed? She says, well, I have it right here written in my husband's book. And she puts the book up on the desk, and she shows him, and, and he begins to flip through the book, and he says, oh, all right, I see, yes. Uh, and is this your husband's writing? And he points at a little red pen mark. And she says, well, yes, that is. He closes the book. He says, then take this home. No court in the world will give you a verdict against those when your husband has in his own words, his own pen, his own handwriting written, forgiven unable to pay. Oh, friends, is there someone that you need to forgive? We like to be debt collectors. Oh, we're good debt collectors, aren't we? We're good record keepers. We know how to keep the score really well, but we don't know how to forgive it. And we wonder why we don't see mountains moved. Jesus says, listen, if you want mountains to move, you've got to deal with your unforgiving spirit. 
And we're not just talking here about big things. Notice it says here, if ye have aught against any. That word ought means anything, big or small. It's talking about that sarcastic tone your husband used when he spoke to you. It's talking about that time when your boss brushed you off and didn't care about your concerns. That time when your relatives made that snide remark about your, your family and the stand that you take. But that time when the neighbors blew his leaves onto your yard again. About that time when your dad broke his promises. Again. When your parents broke up, not caring at all about the pain that it caused you. Anything. Big or small. My friend, is there something you're holding on to? You're holding against someone today? Forgive. I know it's not always easy. It's never easy. But it's a choice. A woman watched in horror as her neighbor, whom they had considered a good friend, literally hacked her husband to death right in front of her face there in the country of Rwanda. With blood on his hands, this murderer, with many others, fled to the neighboring country of Zaire. And there he hid out trying to to um, stay anonymous. But two years later, when civil war broke out there, he was forced to return to his country of Rwanda. And there he returned to the capital city of Kigali and starved and in rags. He was just trying to survive in anonymity, trying to, to, to find a way to live life without uh, being found out. And then one day in the marketplace there, he came face to face with her, the wife of the man that he had killed. Oh, they recognized her, each other instantly as their eyes connected. It's hard to say who was more shocked. He froze in terror because he knew all she had to do was to cry out, to denounce him, and he would be arrested at best, perhaps even lynched on the spot. Even if he was arrested, his testimony, her testimony would be enough to have him condemned forever. But instead of crying out in condemnation, that woman simply said, come with me to my home. Well, he was terrified to do that, fearing some sort of revenge, but not really having any other alternative in the moment, he followed her, looking for his way to escape all along the way. Well, they arrived and she made him sit, and he was again trying to, to plan the best escape route if something, was, something turned bad and, was, and happened, trying to get away. But she brought him some food and placed it before him, some water. And while he was eating that, she went to the back room and then came out again, this time with clothing. Clothing that had belonged to her husband, the man that he had killed. He stared in disbelief as she spoke these words. I want you to know that I forgive you for your sin against me. I can do this only because I love Jesus who has forgiven me. Through his grace, I can follow his example. You may go in peace. Wow. What a story. Friends, that was something big that she chose to forgive. What is it for you? The same grace is available to you today to forgive that was available to her. Aren't you thankful that you've been forgiven? 
by Jesus Christ? Not holding anything against anyone. That includes not holding things against others. But I think sometimes the person that we may have the hardest time forgiving is ourself. Oh, it says ought against anyone. So yes, others, but also you. Boy, that time that you blew it. Time you feel like you messed everything up. The, 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 the wreck that you see maybe among your family you feel like is all your fault. That time that you, you you're, you're, that great opportunity on the job, that, that you lost it because, boy, you, you failed big time. And you've just had a hard time getting over it. Forgiving yourself. Think, I just blew it. I messed it up. Boy, that sin of your past. And you're holding it against yourself. Jesus says, listen, if you have aught against any, forgive. So that your mountains can move. Why is this matter of forgiveness so crucial? Notice the end of verse 25. He says, forgive that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. This isn't talking about eternal salvation, obviously. Jesus is talking about our relationship with God. And he's saying if you will not forgive others, then you're not in a right relationship with God. And so you're not in a right position to ask. If you're holding on to your sin of an unforgiving bitter spirit towards someone, then Jesus can't forgive that sin. He can't cleanse you of that sin because you're still holding on to it. And thus, he can't hear you. As Psalm 66 tells us, if I regard iniquity in my heart, if I hold on to sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Oh, listen, friend. As one commentator said, God has never promised to answer the prayer of an unforgiving heart. An attitude of unforgiveness effectively blocks the channel of prayer so that no answer is possible. God forgives us as we forgive our brothers in Christ. This is not the forgiveness offered to a sinner, but to a failing saint. Unless we forgive others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us when we come to him acknowledging our sins from day to day. Oh, listen, friend. Do you want to move mountains? Do you want to be able to pray and see God answer? You've got to deal with this unforgiving spirit so that you can be living and walking in that right relationship with God because you're in a right relationship with others. You say, but they did me wrong. They, they hurt me. Don't let the hurt of the past Keep you from the healing of Jesus. Don't let, don't let what someone else did keep you from walking close with God. Forgiveness. Oh, friend, are you facing a mountain this morning? I don't know what your mountain is. You do. See, wherever you go to serve Jesus, you're going to face obstacles. And the only way that they're going to be removed is if you can pray unhindered. Unhindered. So are your prayers hindered this morning? By an unbelieving heart? 
or by an unforgiving spirit. Oh, friends, it doesn't have to stay that way. You can get your eyes back on God today. Confess that sin of unbelief and say, God, I've been questioning you. I've doubted whether you're really trustworthy, whether you'll actually do what you've said you will do. I've had doubt in my heart. I'm choosing today to confess that as sin and get my eyes back on you instead of on the mountain. Or is it an unforgiving spirit? Do you need to go to the courtroom of heaven and say, God, I've been holding this against this person. You know what they did. You know the pain that it's caused, the destruction it's caused in my life. And God, I've been holding on to that. But God, I'm coming to you today, and by your grace, I'm letting go. Well, friends, forgiveness is not a one-time choice. It's a way of life. But it begins with that first choice of, I'm going to let go. An unbelieving heart and an unforgiving spirit. Are your prayers hindered this morning? Let's bow for prayer. Just before we pray and have a moment of invitation, I'd just like to ask two simple questions. I'm going to say, Brother Mueller, this was for me this morning. There's mountains that I'm facing. There's, there's needs in my life and those that I love. And I've seen this morning, God's made it clear that I have this, this hindrance in my life of the unbelieving heart. And by uplifted hand, I would say, God's dealt with me about an unbelieving heart this morning. Does anyone who lift your hand and say, Brother Mueller, that's me tonight, this morning. God's, God's dealt with me about an unbelieving heart. Praise the Lord. You can put those down. How many say, for, Brother Mueller, for me, it's, it's this matter of the unforgiving spirit. There's something I've been holding on to, holding against someone. Lift that hand. If that's you, you're saying there's an unforgiving spirit in my heart. And today I need to go to the courtroom of heaven and say, God, I'm going to let this go. I need to start a new way of life, no longer holding on to that. And saying, God... I'm letting go. It's in your hands. I don't need anything in return. They owe me nothing. Lord, you've seen these hands. You know the hearts of the folks here. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this moment of invitation to take the steps that need to be taken. But to respond to you completely. Lord, thank you for Jesus this morning. And that you cleanse of every sin. That you heal the hurts in our hearts. And Lord, thank you that you've chosen to use us to move mountains. So Lord, help us this morning to deal with those hindrances so we can be people who truly have faith in God. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together to our feet. If God's spoken to your heart this morning and you need to respond, you know that, boy, I need to come. I need to confess this sin to the Lord. I need to go to that courtroom of heaven and, and say, Lord, they owe me nothing. I'd encourage you to respond this morning.
If it's coming, coming to the front here, kneeling at the front, if you're able to do that, sit on that front pew. If you need to do that, sit where you are. But, but make a step of response to God right now if God's dealing with your heart. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To learn more about Grace Baptist or how to have eternal life, visit gracekettering.org. And remember, you are always welcome at Grace Baptist Church.